electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, we're going round two on the banks. One of our traders says this is the best-looking chart in all of the financials. That name in his bull case straight ahead. Plus, we're all over the after-hours action in shares of Fastly, the cloud stock down big right now after the company's slash revenue guidance for the quarter. Why a TikTok takedown is to blame. And later, Ford hits a big bump in the road. We'll tell you about the hybrid headline that sent shares skidding today. But we start off with an earnings alert on United, the airline lower in the after-hours session after reporting earnings. Let's get straight to Phil LeBeau with the details. Phil. Hey, Melissa, United losing $1.8 billion in the third quarter. That's not a surprise. Everybody knows what's been happening with the airline industry. The numbers, a little wider loss than many people were estimating, a loss of $8.16 a share. The estimate was for a loss of $7.53. Revenue falling 78%, coming in a little shy of expectations at $2.48 billion. The real metric that everybody's focused on, the daily cash burn. Now, just for a point of reference, this is a company that was losing $50 million a day back at the end of March when the pandemic accelerated. They brought it down to $40 million for a daily cash loss in Q2. They bring it down to $25 million in Q3. $4 million of that, by the way, is debt and severance payments. So their core daily cash burn comes down to $21 million a day. Now, in the earnings report, they do not give a break-even date. So while we heard from Delta yesterday saying, look, we think we're break-even sometime in the spring, United is not addressing that in this earnings report, though I suspect that that, we know that question is going to come up on the analyst call tomorrow. I suspect that United will likely give some guidance at that time. It's liquidity, $19.4 billion. More importantly, Melissa, the company is stressing that it believes it has the cash on hand to get through this pandemic. Nobody knows quite how long this pandemic will last, how long airlines will be down. Is it a year and a half, two years? But United does believe that it's positioned well coming out of the third quarter, at least in terms of liquidity. Don't forget, we have an exclusive tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. You do not want to miss this. Scott Kirby, CEO of United Airlines, he'll be talking to us not only about the numbers, about the daily cash burn, but also this question of what's the path to break even? Is it, does it happen in the spring? Does it happen sooner than that? A lot of questions for him tomorrow morning. Melissa? Phil, had United before given a break-even target like Delta had? I don't remember them giving a specific target. Mm -hmm. I know that they were hoping to get close to break-even by the end of the year. Frankly, that's what every airline was pushing for. Let's get close to break-even by the end of the year. So I wouldn't be surprised if they come out and they say, look, we now think it's going to be sometime in the spring or late first quarter, second quarter. That would not surprise me, nor would it surprise any analysts either. So it's not like this is news where people are saying, wait a second, we don't know when they're going to get back to break-even. Looking at the progression on the daily cash burn and how much it's coming down, uh, I think that's going to be one of the focus points of the analyst call tomorrow. And I think 
you're going to see Wall Street try to pin them down in terms of when they think they get to break even. Yeah, it seems like as soon as Delta said, you know, we're going to push that out, it, it sort of opened the door for the other airlines to do the same. Um, Phil, thank you. We'll be uh, listening for that you interview bet. tomorrow on Squawk Box. Phil LeBeau, let's trade these airlines here. Guy Dami, what's, what's your reaction? I mean, as Phil had said, everybody expected a terrible quarter for the airlines. But what do you do now if you're in these stocks? Well, United's interesting. So they have $19.5 billion. Obviously, Phil mentioned the cash burns down to $21 million if you back out the four. All good things. They furloughed 13,000 people. Um, so they're in a place now where they, they definitely can ride this thing out. The problem is you've got competition coming. Southwest is going to, I think, Chicago here, uh, Washington National, which are two of United's hubs. There's no international travel whatsoever, which is clearly one of United's sweet spots. And, oh, by the way, even if you want to go someplace, New Jersey just announced, uh, Governor Murphy just announced that 36 states and Puerto Rico and Guam, if you were to visit those places, you have to quarantine for 14 days. You know, travel's not coming back anytime soon. I don't say that with glee. It's just the fact. It's the way it is. So, you know, you mentioned break even in the spring. I think that's best case scenario. That said, at $35, the stock is smack in the middle of the 32, 38 range. We've seen basically since June, 35 is no man's land. You sell it at 38, you buy it back at 32. If break-even is a moving target, Karen, right now, then how, how can you judge whether or not you want to be in the airlines? I don't know. I, I can't, so I'm not in them. I'm also unclear. Are they going to get some additional help from the government? I don't know. It seemed like today maybe they were trading like they were, but some of the rhetoric sounded like uh, Pelosi doesn't want to do it. So... I just think, you know, you look at the stocks and how they're traded, but it, that, sort of for, that sort of doesn't take into account all of the debt that they've taken on. So the enterprise value is much bigger now. So I just want to stay away from the space for a while. You know, one thing that we talk about, which, which biotech to play on a vaccine, I think you get a lot more bang for your buck with the airlines. They'll react much better than picking the right vaccine. But all that having been said, I want to stay away from the space. The balance sheets are too levered for me. So I'll pose the same question to Tim, who is a shareholder. If we don't know what break even is and the targets are moving around, um, and let's say United gives uh, sometime next spring, like Delta, how, how can you judge that you want to be in this space? Well, I'm not long. I'm not in Delta. I'm in. Mm -hmm. I'm in. Excuse me. I'm not long. United. Yeah, I'm right. in Delta. And to me, a quarter uh, here, a quarter there. I don't mean to be, you know, whimsical about break even and when it happens. But but whether it was the end of 2020 or the first quarter of 21 or maybe the second quarter of 21, um, I don't think it really ultimately matters for the airlines at this point. I think they've gotten uh, about as lean as they can get. They're probably going to get a bit leaner. You have a case where there's going to be consolidation in the airline industry. For the strongest, it's going to be okay. We've seen with Delta uh, the value in the co-branded card franchise. Uh, we've seen uh, their ability to issue non-dilutive uh, debt. So they've also been able to do this at a, at a time when the rates are extremely low. And I don't think these are going to be uh, difficult things for them to pay back when they get free cash flow positive. I'm not jumping up and down about the scenario here. I'm just saying uh, when these companies start to make money again, is, is that the time to go buy them? Or is it when you start to get some sense that you, you've gotten at, at least a bottom on the cost structure. Remember, business travel won't recover. The most profitable part of their business is not going to recover probably for three years. And, and we don't know if it's even going to ever be that same business. So um, I think valuations have to be seen as different. Uh, but if you look at the charts on the airlines, too, off that bottom, these haven't been easy charts to hold on to, but they've been holding an uptrend line. And, and I think until they don't, I think you can stay in that trade. 
I think Tim brings up a very good point in terms of, of the new world for the airlines. It could be a very different world, at least for the next few years, Dan. And devaluations reflect that that new world. What's your view on where valuations are right now? And if they reflect that um, leaner world out there when it comes to travel? Yeah, well, I think our panel just really surrounded the trade, Mel. That was kind of some old school fast money right there. Um, I'll just say this. I heard a lot of interesting things there. Um, You talk about that's what you do. Um, We talked about, you know, that cost structure getting lower and lower and lower. And at some point, though, that cash burn without that visibility um, of demand coming back is going to be really hard. Right. And so when you talk about valuation, that's also a moving target. But I also agree with what Tim just said. These stocks actually act pretty well, if you think about it, over the last three or four months. If you go all the way back to early June when we had that surprise, better than expected uh, unemployment level, the, the flattening of the curve of, of the virus was really so, a story about a reopening trade. And this summer, things were going to get back to business. Did you see how those stocks rallied? And that's the point that Karen made, which I thought was excellent, is that these stocks are going to rally a lot harder, let's say, than a Pfizer or a Lilly or a Johnson & Johnson on the news of the vaccine. You're just going to have just th- that much more of a coiled spring right there. So I I think they're an interesting group. I would want to stick with the best balance sheets. I'd want to stick with the ones that are domestic here because I think the domestic's going to come back quicker. I do agree with Tim about the uh, international and the business stuff. That's a tough road to hoe. So to me, it's JetBlue and Southwest best balance sheets, and they're likely to feel it um, first when things come back. Since we're visiting fast money and days of yore, Guy Adami, um, in terms of second derivative mm-hmm. trades, if, if you are not a believer in the airlines, are you necessarily not a believer in Boeing. It's fascinating. You know, we've said, and Dan's brought this up, and I've sort of echoed it and sort of built upon it. Boeing's got serious issues, and Tim correctly will say, you know, they're not getting any um, credit whatsoever for their aerospace defense business, and he's right by saying that. But you look at the way this stock has traded over the last couple months, and it's fascinating what's going to happen in earnings, which I believe are, are next week or maybe the week after early in that week. So, I'm sitting here watching Boeing, just fascinated by the whole thing. I think Boeing has serious issues, and I don't think the worst is over in terms of the stock. I don't think we're getting back to where we saw in March by any stretch, which I think was $89. But I absolutely think we could revisit $150. Um, I think that's going to be your tell as we get into November, Mel. All right. Let's stick with earnings and turn to the banks now. Shares of Wells Fargo and Bank of America sinking today after both both posted worse than expected results. Low interest rates, partly to blame for, for putting pressure on their businesses. But on the flip side, Goldman Sachs managing a gain today after crushing estimates for the quarter. Profits nearly doubled. Trading revenues rose 29 percent from a year ago. Um, Guy, you say haves and have nots in this bank trade. Why? No question. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, and, you know, you can obviously speak to the other panelists, esteemed as they are, in terms of what J.P. Morgan has done. But look at the disaster of of City, And then to a certain extent, I mean, Bank of America gets a. I think Bank of America has gotten a huge pass only because the disasters that are Wells Fargo and City. But Bank of America is not far behind, by the way. And and they sort of have to ramp up their game. So the haves are clearly J.P. Morgan. To a certain extent, I guess Goldman Sachs. And, and I think Dan's going to talk about Morgan Stanley. The have-nots are the three that I mentioned. The sleeper in this group, mm-hmm. and one that we've talked about, is a name like Blackstone that reports at the end of the month, I believe. Obviously not exactly the same, but 
you're talking about a company that's significant earnings growth, reasonable valuation, and has traded relatively well vis-a-vis -vis the other banks. So I like Blackstone out of the group here, Mel. You know, the action at Wells Fargo today was really interesting. Uh, prior to the conference call, it was down something like 3.5%. As the conference call went on, um, it ticked lower and lower, finally finishing the day down 6%. Um, I'm going to pose this question of would you rather to Karen Feinerman. Would you rather oh. Citigroup or Wells Fargo at this point? Whoa. At this point, I would rather Wells Fargo. I know we had Gerard on yesterday, and he talked about Citibank as having a different kind of problem than Wells Fargo. But Wells Fargo is two and a half years into their problem. And one of the things that was disappointing about today was expenses. And I think expenses is something that they will be able to control. So I would rather have Wells Fargo than wow. Citi. But wow. I'd rather, rather have Jamie Dimon than you know, J.P. Morgan, then yes, I would. Well, and that's my obviously, biggest bet, J.P. Morgan. Uh, yeah, <laughs> clearly. Obviously. obviously Jamie trumps all in Karen's world of bank trades. Um, <laughs> Wells Fargo, though, you know, you mentioned expenses. That, that was one of the problems going into the pandemic. Going into the pandemic, this is arguably one of the weakest bank franchises going in. It had declining revenues and a bloated expense base. Um, I will pose the same question to Tim Seymour. I think this is an interesting uh, exercise here. Yeah, this is a tough one. You're not you, the, the choices are, are, are kind of brutal, but I, I have to go with Citibank because I still have a position in Citibank. Mm -hmm. And my view is that uh, major restructuring has not completed Citibank. Uh, I think Ms. Frazier will certainly get as faster to that point and maybe she gets elevated even faster uh, to that position. But uh, ultimately, this, the story on Citibank has been global expense cutting. I, I also just think that some of their consumer businesses were not as strong uh, as others relative to their peers during a time when we actually have seen uh, the mortgage refi business, for example, do very, very well. Even auto loans have picked up. And we've heard that from e even people like Wells Fargo and Bank of America. So um, Citibank on the would you rather. It's uh, it, it's not a great choice, Mel. Thanks. <laughs> That's why it's so tough. Um, I'm not going to pose a question to Dan because he's actually got a would you rather rather. It's neither of these. It's none of the banks mentioned so far in this conversation, Dan, that you think looks the best at this point. Which one? So, so, so you knew I wasn't going to play your game, Mel. Um, you know, mine would be Morgan Stanley. And I think these guys kind of laid out um, the differential between these money center banks and some of the issues that they had with costs and, and, and a whole host of other issues with uh, interest rates where they are. The investment banks, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, we know that we uh, saw Goldman's report this morning. I mean, things around trading and capital markets activity and investment banking is doing amazing. Morgan Stanley just closed their E-Trade deal. Um, they just last week or two weeks ago made a seven billion dollar bid for asset manager Eaton Vance. I, I think that they're uh, not making waste of a good recession here and they're looking to kind of redefine what this company is going forward. They're going to report tomorrow morning if this thing's okay the way Goldman was. I think you buy this stock. This stock has traded really, really well. It's held its 200-day moving average here. If it could stay within this consolidation range over the last few months and start working to the high end of it, I think you have a trade into the end of the year maybe back towards those all-time highs near 60. And just the last point about Bank America. We have a chart here. This is one of the worst charts in the entire market. Hmm. Look at how it held that uptrend all summer, right? And then it broke last month, and then it got rejected there again, right at its 200-day moving average. I think you're going to see lower lows in these money centers. And just look at how Citi and Wells Fargo acted. You may see Bank America start to follow suit. All that being said, JP Morgan clearly acts the best. And I know what Karen meant when she said she'd rather have Jamie Dimon.
<laughs> Guy, I'm going to I'm going to ask you sort of the same question in that, you know, I asked Dick Kovacevic this morning, who's a former Wells Fargo CEO, some, you know, more than 10 years ago or so, um, which bank he thought or which kinds of banks he thought would weather the storm the best in the next six to uh, 12 months or so. And he said J.P. Morgan and Bank of America. Would you agree? Even though, I mean, Dan is saying Bank of America looks like the worst chart out there. J.P. Morgan, for sure, he, he's probably far more uh, well-versed in terms of Bank of America's balance sheet than I am. But I'll say this, my pushback would be, uh, and obviously the Jamie Dor- uh, Diamond restraining order notwithstanding, why is Bank America trading at a pre- So they just reported their book value, their tangible book, tangible book value was, I think, $19.5. Now, you could say they're trading premium to city. I get it. City trades at 63% of tangible book. Bank of America trades at a premium to tangible book. Something's off there. I think Bank of America's got to trade lower, and I think City's too cheap. So would you rather? I'd rather City over Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo's problems run deep. Remember that movie, Run Silent, Run Deep? Well, they're running silent and they're running deep, Mel. I don't remember, but we shall move on. Uh, coming up, a TikTok takedown shares of Fastly plunging in the after-hour session. Why all the drama over TikTok deal is to blame. And later, you're gearing up for Airbnb's big debut. Early investor Rick Heitzman will join us. We will talk to him about the health of the IPO market and his brand new SPAC. Stay with us. Fast Money's back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Fastly plunging 27% after hours. A cloud computing company cutting revenue guidance for the current quarter, citing political uncertainty around its biggest customer, which happens to be TikTok parent ByteDance. Fastly stock had been one of the big winners this year, up more than 500% before this drop. And uh, TikTok, Dan has previously disclosed, made up about 12% of revenues year to date. So that was a big hit. Yeah, big hit here. I mean, really shocking down 28% on a 5% guide down on revenues. It just tells you, I think you said the number that's most important in the email. It's up 500% on the year coming into the close today. It's up 1,000% from its March lows. And it was trading on today's close at 43 times sales that are expected to grow this year about 50%, then decelerate to 35% growth. So, I mean, this is not the company's fault, right? You, you go out there, you get customers like ByteDance, um, you're gonna have some of this uncertainty, especially pl- uh, playing in a global market. This is really investors' fault bidding this stock up to where they did at valuations that are just not not sustainable. Karen? Yeah, I agree with that. My first thought, though, is I think of this as such a Robin Hood stock and this kind of action in the um, aftermarket hours, I don't know where the stock is right now, 89, mm-hmm. makes me think we're going to see some Robin Hood margin calls coming up. And so what would they look to sell? They look to sell Fastly. But what are the other top Robin Hood names? And might those get hit having nothing to do with Fastly or their earnings or TikTok or anything? Right. So pressure on the retail investor, but unlikely, I would imagine, Tim, to put actual pressure on the markets. 
No, I, I don't think so. Look, we've, we've speculated at times to what extent you know, really, really fast money uh, on fast money. We've had that conversation. Mm-hmm. I, I think as far as Fastly goes, uh, still up 500 percent on the year, still flat over you know the last five or six days. Uh, the signal science acquisition is something that at least the street came in and upgraded their growth numbers. Uh, but right, if, if they're going to not grow 50 percent and or if you're going to see a little bit slower, uh, that's tough. I don't think Tic Tac alone is why people own this company, though. And I think if anything, uh, part of the story was they were acquiring much larger customers. You should not be owning this company if Tic Tac's their only customer. Um, I don't think you should be owning this company anyway at these valuations, but this is difficult news, but I don't think this is uh, a game changer for the company. Certainly a stock that's had a massive run. And again, it was up 25% uh, going into today over the last five days. So you've given that back. But this certainly sort of underscores Um, the lesson that we've seen time and time again, Guy, of a company that serves other customers dependent on one large customer or a handful of large customers. They don't meet expectations. That trickles back onto their their performance. Yeah, and I think Dan made an excellent point. And, you know, indulge me for a second. Are you a fan of the great Eddie Murphy movie, Coming to America, Mel? I mentioned that because coming to the number two America is, is coming out. And one of the great lines in that movie, I'm sure Tim is aware, is in the face. You remember that, in the face? And I mentioned that because <laughs> in the beginning of August, Oppenheimer downgraded this stock, and they cited exactly what just happened now, their reliance on TikTok. And I say in the face because for the next month and a half, the stock just went straight up. They were right, though, and they mentioned exactly what's happening now. I think Karen's point is exactly right. I mean, the Robin Hood guys and gals ratchet this thing up, and they're going to ratchet it right back down. Dan mentioned 40 times revenue. It's, it's preposterous, but it's not Fastly's fault. It's what's been created by a number of different things. With that, all that said, it broke out from $80, and that should be the support level. Is Coming to America 2, is that really coming out? And is that an actual sequel to the first one, or is that just a remake? It's too bad. No, it's no, no it's Man, not a I, remake, Melissa. It's a sequel because it's coming instead of the number instead of TO to America. Right. It's coming to America. See right. the clever on So it's what there? happens and yes, years Eddie later. Murphy will be in there. That's something to look yes, forward exactly, to. Precisely. Okay. In the face. Uh, we've yeah, got much boom. more, much more ahead on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Should bond markets get ready to ride a blue wave? What could a Democratic sweep of next month's elections mean for yields? We'll get some answers in our latest edition of Fast Trades the Vote. Plus, they say timing is everything. So what should we make of the flood of big-name IPOs coming to the market with so much uncertainty on the horizon? We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it. Book it. Live it. One Travel. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. 
Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money, where we're trading the vote. We are looking at all the different parts of the market that could be impacted by next month's election results. And tonight, we are talking bonds. Our next guest says a big blue wave could spark a major move in the Treasury market. Let's bring in Kevin Giddis, Chief Fixed Income Strategist at Raymond James. Kevin, great to have you with us. Thank you, Melissa. I mean, the assumption is that Democrats spend more money, right? <laughs> we're going to have a bigger yeah. deficit. There's going to be more debt issue. I mean, is that sort of the logic behind this? Yeah, it really is. And, and of course, we went through this in 2016 with expectations uh, going into the election and then getting a different outcome, which uh, really shook up the fixed income market in particular. I think um, I think fixed income investors, it's a different time period and they go in with a different view. So assuming a full blue uh, wave is a Democratic uh, a president in a Democratic Congress, you would expect higher taxes. You would likely expect a bigger stimulus package and the combination uh, of a bigger stimulus package uh, would likely bring the economy back stronger, but it also may bring inflation with it. So most of those, with the exception of the muni market, would be negative for um, the fixed income market, the taxable market in particular, and Treasury. So it, it's just, you know, may not end up that way, but that's the way it sets up, at least in the investor's mind right now. In your view, are yields telling you uh, how the market is positioning itself? Yeah, so, you know, in the fixed income world, we, we look at really just three dates. We look at the pre-crisis period of mid-February. We look at the complete fallout of, of middle to uh, latter part of March. And we look at what's happening today. So right now, while spreads have contracted quite a bit and continue to contract, volatility is starting to tick up, which means investors are getting a little bit worried as we approach the election that maybe they need to hedge some of these uh, ideas as to what's going to happen in the future or what's going to happen next year. So, you know, I, I kind of think that we're, we're going to start to see volatility go up. I think we're going to see a little bit of uptick in yield as we go into the election until we have some certainty. And who knows whether we get full clarity on uh, election night. It's Karen. Thanks for being on. Let me ask you about the dollar. Is the weakness in the dollar already sort of pricing that in for a blue wave? Yeah, I think so, Karen. I think that we're starting to kind of see a trend develop here, but the, but the dollar has kind of been up and down all year. And I think we would see, um, because the Fed is, is just controlling so much of, of what's going on in the rate structure, uh, that weakness in the dollar is um, has been with us um, and not likely to hurt us so much uh, if, we, if we see the blue wave. But it is a factor that uh, we're going to pay attention to uh, in the last, especially the last week before the election. Hey, are you thinking about, you know, I, you saw that trade data last week. We had the biggest trade deficit since 2006. Do you think a blue wave also means that we get rid of some of Trump's tariffs here? And that would also be something that could help offset possibly higher taxes in 2021 or 2022? Yeah. So, um, you know, the taxes, um, taxes, you would remove, potentially remove the tariffs and then add taxes to both individuals and to corporations. And you would offset some of that um, uh some of that issue, but I think that um, I think we're, we're in a different period in the sense that you're not going to be able to just to turn the economy on um, in the middle of a pandemic or towards whatever stage you think we are in the pandemic. We still have to fight uh, the uh, medical health care issue while we're trying to bring back the economy. So I don't think it just is as simple as flipping a switch here and flipping a switch there. Boom, we, we take off and um, 
you know, everything's good again. So I, I think um, if we were further along or we had a vaccine that we were ready to roll out, I, I might change my mind about what uh, are the levers that are going to change uh, what where economic growth is going to be and what it means to interest rates. We've been talking about uh, the blue wave scenario, Kevin, but what happens if things are fairly status quo after the election? So there, there's a couple of scenarios, and we saw this um, in 2016 when it kind of went all Republican, and then we saw a split of Congress in 2018 and what happened to the markets then. Um, so, you know, you can make a, a certain amount of assumptions. Well, let's just deal with the one that we have now that will continue to have a split Congress as we go into the next uh, two years. The markets aren't going to be really upset by that. There may be a chance that you see uh, some increased taxes, but we're likely going to see the same battles that we're fighting now well into the next couple of years. And I think that's, um, you know, I don't know if anybody saw the speech that uh, Richmond Fed DeBarkin gave today, but he talked about virus uncertainty, political uncertainty, and fiscal uncertainty, it's really hard to get an economy going during those times. We still have those uncertainties. And I think if you split Congress, no matter who wins the White House, that's likely where we're going to live for a while. All right. Kevin, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Kevin Geddes. Uh, we've been talking about the weak dollar for some time, Tim. Goldman Sachs, I believe, came out with a call earlier this week saying a blue wave could mean dollar weakness to levels we haven't seen for a couple of years. Um, what, what do you think? What do you think the election impact could be? Well, I, first of all, I think as long as, you know, Kevin also mentioned the Fed, and mm -hmm. I think the Fed that we have is going to, uh, whether we want to or not, keep rates pinned. And, and the Fed says they want inflation, but in fact, their policy is deflationary. So uh, I think no matter what we have, look at the rest of the world also. Look at where yields are around the world uh, and the positive carry trade for investing in the U.S. and, and borrowing in yen. I think that's going to continue to dominate. I, unfortunately, uh, I think yields moving up 50 to 100 basis points would be a great story because it would be more indicative of really what's going on with the overall economy. Uh, and that the minute the Fed begins to unwind some of the stimulus, if they ever do. Uh, and again, we've had these periods where we have had the ability to take away extreme accommodation and they've done nothing. Um, I, I think the dollar is is range bound. I think we've seen it vacillate uh, essentially between 80 and, and 110 on the Dixie, but 100 seems to be the high end. And I think somewhere around 82, 83. Um, the bottom line is, if you think the dollar is going to continue to weaken, you want to own emerging markets, you want to own commodities, you want to own resource plays. Uh, and those, if you look at EM, it's just kicked back up to almost two year highs. Mm. Um, so while an area I've invested in much of my career, and I'm not saying go out and buy it blindly, I think you have to take a look at some of those if the dollar continues to weaken. You are an emerging market specialist, Tim. Coming up, shares of Ford hitting the skids as its electric vehicle ambitions take a major detour. But can other players in the EV space take advantage? We'll break it all down. And later, we are counting down to earnings from Taiwan Semi, why options traders are betting on a big pop when it reports tomorrow. We'll bring you the trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The electric car surge seems to uh, be powering down for one car company today. Ford is postponing the launch of its electric SUVs after a recall of its cars in Europe for heating up while charging. But the electric car trade is still surging. Shares of Tesla and Neo driving higher today on some positive analyst action. Neo zooming more than 22 percent after an upgrade at J.P. Morgan, where analysts say the stock could nearly double. Tesla, meantime, getting a price target bump over at Goldman Sachs. Um, Guy Dami, where do you want to go on this one? And I'm going to be very clear here. I'm going to be, say that I've not been some raging Tesla bull. I have not by any stretch of the imagination, but I've been pretty consistent on this one 
I've said since when, when Elon Musk in the beginning of May pre-split when it was $700 a stock making an all-time high and he made a comment about how the stock was too expensive and the sell-off lasted a day and then it proceeded to basically triple if not quadruple. That told you everything you need to know. And I'll submit again, Tesla within I think now 8% of its all-time high is probably going to continue to ratchet higher. Uh, I don't necessarily understand it. I've tried to figure it out. There are a lot of people that do get it. But I think Tesla continues to be the play. And I, I want to emphasize, you know, I've not been um, this steadfast bull, but that's been my opinion now for a while in terms of the stock. You know, Ford has been trying to electrify its lineup for quite some time here. Maybe this makes you appreciate GM's strategy, Karen, which seems to be some partnerships here and there and, and also a, a separate unit, the cruise unit. Right. It also makes me wonder what's happening with the Nikola deal. Is there going to be one or not? Um, you know, it's, that was an interesting piece. They also cited BYD, which actually didn't look mm -hmm. crazy expensive. That's the one where Warren Buffett owns 25%. I mean, I do absolutely believe that, you know, that the switch to EV or hybrid or, what, or whatever, NEV, um, new energy vehicles, is definitely happening. And I think it'll happen more quickly than we think. GM needs to get make something something sexier about their business. They get no value, no love in the market for it at all. Yeah. Tim? Well, the J.P. Morgan note on NEO effectively called them the, the, the premium play in the China EV market and that they will win over time. And that's a stock that certainly is not for the faint of heart. But, but we know the story on EV and EV demand, and certainly that's driven some of the Tesla valuation. So uh, NEO and J.P. Morgan's call is just that. As far as Ford goes, um, a, a delay here on the Ford 150, for example, in EV land is I, it's it's a speed bump, but it's it's not the end of the road. And in fact, I think it's why uh, a lot of people are getting a lot more excited about the EV strategy. That frankly, Ford uh, I think it lagged behind in, in in terms of the Ford GM. You can make an argument uh, for the stock for the chart. Uh, very interesting if you look at bo both the autos, and we've talked some of the secular. COVID trade you know, dynamics of also just the auto industry and where auto sales have gone uh, and the growth over the last couple of quarters. So uh, staying in this trade right now, both on the charts and the fundamentals, the long-term EV story uh, is probably not why you're buying it. All right. Coming up, the next wave of IPOs are getting ready to hit the market. We'll be joined by an early Airbnb investor who says the rental marketplace is red hot in this COVID environment. More on that ahead. Plus, a semi-stock that has set the store. That's what some options traders are betting on. Stick around because we'll lay out that trade. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's get a quick check on shares of United Airlines off of its after-hours lows after reporting earnings. Um, by the way, be sure to tune into Squawk Box tomorrow morning to hear exclusively from United CEO Scott Kirby, 8.40 a.m. Eastern Time. And speaking of the airlines, the government is still deadlocked over a second coronavirus relief package, which could include another round of payroll support for the nation's airline workers. As part of a new documentary, CNBC's Shepard Smith spoke with Sarah Nelson, the head of the largest flight attendants union, about the need for more relief money. There are plenty of people who think spending more taxpayer money on the airlines is the wrong thing to do because it delays the cost-cutting decisions that airlines need to make. To those people who say, spend your own money, we've been bailing out the airlines for long enough. To those people, what do you say? Air travel demand is at 15%. This is not a normal time. If they came to flight attendants, for example, and said, we need you to cut your pay, 
We could give away all of it, and it wouldn't solve the problem. Imagine that. 750,000 workers working for free would not take care of the problems in the airline industry right now. For an inside look at the U.S. air travel system and what is at stake for the workers and travelers who depend on it, catch the new documentary, Shepard Smith Reports Air Travel in Turmoil, premiering tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on CNBC. Coming up, should you dip into the chip stocks? Options traders are betting on one semi-name, saying it's about to soar. Those details straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. The next big wave of IPOs may reflect the names consumers have been relying on during the pandemic. CNBC's Deidre Bosa is on IPO Watch. Hey, Deidre. Hey, Melissa. Timing an IPO in 2020, it's tricky. The big software names, Palantir, Snowflake, Unity, and others, they time theirs after the onset of the pandemic and ahead of election uncertainty. But the buzzy consumer names, they're waiting till after the election, and that could potentially open them up to more uncertainty. Candidates eyeing listings over the next three to six months include some of the biggest and oldest startups in unicorn land. Airbnb, according to a source, is aiming to debut in December. DoorDash has already filed confidentially, and Instacart and Bumble are reportedly eyeing early 2021. But some key questions here, like will market volatility increase post-election, especially as investors worry about the outcome? Prop 22 as well. It is now the most expensive ballot initiative ever in California. It could force gig economy companies to reclassify their workers, which would upend their business models. Lastly, guys, will investors even be hungry for consumer names after last year's disappointing debuts from Uber and Lyft? Both remain deeply unprofitable and both continue to trade well below their listing prices. So we shall see, Melissa, but one thing that could be to their advantage of course, there are more ways than ever to actually go public. Back to you. Yep. Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa, our next guest, is an Airbnb investor who believes the next wave of consumer IPOs will reflect an innovation revolution. Venture capitalist Rick Heitzman is CEO of First Mark Horizon Acquisition. Rick, great to see you. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. You know, Deidre had mentioned, uh, you know, the bad taste maybe left in some investors' mouths who invested in Lyft and in, in Uber. But on the other side of it, we see a reach for, for high growth companies. What do you think will prevail in this sort of pandemic trading environment? I think you've seen uh, a lot of companies go public and perform very well if you look at Snowflake on the enterprise side. But I think the problems that Uber and Lyft have faced are dealing specifically to that transportation sector, specifically related to, I mean, I don't, I don't know what your personal habits are, but the amount of people taking Uber and Lyfts have dramatically decreased since the pandemic. If you look at other names that are focused on the consumer, DraftKings has, has performed excellently since its public debut earlier this year via SPAC listing. And also you've seen Pinterest double in price. You've seen Snapchat and Twitter increase in price over time. And I think it's it's probably less specific to the growth that you're seeing in, in that sector and more specific to folks chasing growth, chasing a high return on investment and, and some of these consumer names. For an Airbnb, you know, during the pandemic, I didn't think that anybody would want to go to an Airbnb in that sort of environment. And yet here we are. Business, as Deidre had mentioned, is, is in fact booming. Is there a rush, in your view, to get that out the door now that things are hot? And what happens when things go back to normal and people actually start flying and, and staying at hotels again? I, I think that people we were already seeing before the pandemic tremendous uptake from Airbnb. 
and they were t both taking shares from traditional hotels as well as vacation homes. And then in the pandemic, they've done a great job on a couple of different things. You've seen more folks go and do kind of work from home somewhere else. So if you're living in a place like New York, living in a place like San Francisco, you know, do you really want to work out of a small apartment or would you rather go to the Lake Tahoe or the Catskills? You've also seen the desire to go to another place and, and whether it be, you know, a driving vacation. <clears throat> the Airbnb kind of pivoted from what was historically called the top three, top five cities, the Londons, the Parises, and New Yorks, to doing more of, hey, here's a two-hour driving vacation, which you might do as a different alternative this summer or fall, and experiences. So I think that they've pivoted in response to COVID. I think if travel were to come back and hospitality were to rebound, they'd also have be able to take advantage of that trend. Hey, Rick, it's Dan. Um, one of the biggest stories in the stock market this year is SPACs. Um, you and your partner, Amish, uh, through FirstMark, you just launched a SPAC, 360 million bucks. Why did you do it? Why now? And is this a unique transaction for a VC fund like yours? Thanks, Dan. Yeah, I think we, we learned a lot about the SPAC process and learned a lot what was going on in the markets through our investment in DraftKings. And that's been a tremendously successful SPAC and DraftKings has been kind of a unique, very high quality company. And as we thought through that, we thought about, we partner with entrepreneurs at the earliest stages and at the growth stages. And if we're able to partner with entrepreneurs from the earliest stages and be their lead director, be their advisor, and be the first company to be able to take a, be able to partner with an entrepreneur through first institutional investment through the public markets, we'd be the first company of our sort to do that. So being able to have that unique offering to entrepreneurs as well as investors, I think in what you've seen as maybe a rush for folks to get into SPACs makes us completely unique. Hey, Rick, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. DraftKings, you've been in the middle of this story. What do you see in the way of strategics coming into this sector? Because we believe this is uh, you know, where big media has to be and also major sports have to be. I, I think major sports and media has to be there. Uh, I originally came across DraftKings because I was serving on the advisory board of a couple of professional sports leagues, and they thought they had to be there. It's another revenue channel. How do you build ancillaries when you know you can't charge anymore for tickets or media rights? So I think they have to be there. You know, as you know, commonly reported, Disney is a very large investor in DraftKings and, and, and a deep partnership through ESPN, which is probably the premier sports media property. So I think everybody's kind of rooting and picking their partners. I think DraftKings has some of the premier partners in the, in the market due to those some of those relationships as well as relationships with folks like the Philadelphia Eagles and the New York Knicks. So I think this is gonna be a huge fundamental growth area. You know, we're just seeing the beginning of it with certain states allowing legalized gambling. And you're gonna see this play out over the next five years or so, probably even quicker than we would have anticipated because states are gonna need the, the tax revenue dollars. So beginning of a trend, but we think this is going to be a huge macro tailwind over the next decade or so. Just quickly, Rick, uh, Disney is reorging. And so if they were to spin out, let's say, their ESPN business, could you see DraftKings and, and ESPN have a more permanent, more formalized partnership or, or marriage, perhaps? I don't know about a marriage. They have a pretty deep partnership now. You know, they're dating pretty heavily. Disney owns... <laughs> On a dra of DraftKings stock, and I think that DraftKings is integrating with them. So they're uh, 
They're, they might be going steady. I'm not sure if there's a if there's a marriage in their future. Thanks for sticking with the metaphor. Rick, always good to see you. Thanks for your time. It's always good seeing you. Thanks, everybody. Rick Heitzman of First Mark. Let's switch gears now. Go to cyberspace. Cyberspace. Chipmaker Taiwan Semi. We're going to go to the chip space. Reports earnings tomorrow. The stock is up 99% off the March lows. Hit an all-time high earlier this week. Option traders are betting it could go even higher when the results cross the wire. Mike Coast at the action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. So Taiwan Semi, we saw calls significantly outpacing puts by more than two to one. And right now, the options market is implying a move of about 4.6 percent. That's slightly higher than the eight quarter average that we've seen. The most active options were the October 90 calls. Over 9,400 of those traded for about $1.60. Buyers obviously betting that the stock could exceed that $90 strike price by the end of the week, a bullish bet coming out of earnings. The stock obviously has had quite an increase. So is the multiple. These could be stock substitution trades. Yeah. Does this set the table, Guy, in your view, um, for the rest of the chip space? You know, I will tell you that Dan, Tim, and Karen have talked about Taiwan Semi being the leader. And if you look at the other names, they've absolutely played catch-up on the back of TSM. So I think the answer is yes. Uh, I haven't been some raging bull in Taiwan Semi, but I'm with my co. And by the way, I love Rick Heitzman for a number of different reasons, not least of which is Georgetown lineage. And the fact that he, as I was early in Pinterest, if you recall, my Pinterest page from about a decade ago, and look at what that stock's done. And I think it's going continue to rally into earnings at the end of the month. Back to you. House of style and classic rock for all you people wondering out there. I'm sure there are many. Mike, thanks for more options action. Be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trade. We've got a big interview coming your way tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin joins us with the, for the latest on the stimulus negotiations. Don't miss it. 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Time for the final trade now. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, DraftKings, this pullback is one to buy. We heard Rick Heitzman talk about just the, the, the secular story and where strategics and sports and media have to come together. I'm long the stock. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, so the housing trade has been on fire recently, but I think maybe it's time for a little pause. So I'd be selling some out-of-the-money lows calls. Dan Nathan. Yeah, so we talked about Morgan Stanley, the report tomorrow morning. Any weakness there, I think it's a buy. I think you have mid to high 50s in the coming months. Guy Adami. Hey, Melms, have you seen the hospitals lately? I know you have. Tenant health care, I think analysts are going to have to do an about-face on this one. T-H-C. <clears throat> All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft and performance with Acura's all electric ZDX with a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313 mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower. The ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.